You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around and let me know what you want. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Try it out of the time. I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, I'm better. He's a liar. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. For me, it's actually been about three days since my last recording, as this weekend is my sister's wedding. I'm editing this, just getting back from having martinis at a hotel that Munchkin stayed at during the shooting of Wizard of Oz. So I'm feeling very much the Hollywood nostalgia right now for, which I think is the perfect mood to tell this tale. No movies this week, so let's get into what's going on right now with a WGA strike. Not much has changed since the last time I recorded. There's still no plans to reconvene talks. And the DGA, the Directors Guild, has started their negotiations with the AMPTP. So hopefully we don't end up having two unions on strike because, frankly, my sensory meters cannot even fathom the idea of more people on the street leading to more horns honking. I, I, like I said last week, I get why they're on strike and I sympathize and I'm, you know, it's your right to do it. But as someone who's not involved directly in the strike in any way, other than the fact that she works for one of the major studios, it's the sound is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's fine. It's it's part of it, but it's it's a lot. But yeah, uh, this is this is being recorded early Thursday. Nothing's changed. It's very possible because strikes can move fast when trying to reach a um, an agreement. So as of right now, no changes. Very possible that there will be by the time this episode comes out. So with that, on to this week's topic. This week, the strike that tore down the facade of Walt Disney's utopia to show its dirty underbelly. In doing so, Walt's employees would change the face of animation forever. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Everything was not well in the House of Mouse. As the last studio in Hollywood to not have its members unionize, labor leader Herbert Sorrell turned his eyes to the studio, hoping to secure a union contract for the animators behind the studio's gates. But we're missing some context. Five years before Disney's animators would ultimately walk off the job, another animator strike occurred. In New York City back in 1937, Fleischer Studios had been enjoying steady growth thanks to its popular cartoons like Popeye and Betty Boop. 
The studio had grown to 150 strong, but many of these workers were not considered full animators and instead worked in lower departments doing more menial tasks. Because they weren't considered full animators by the studio, they were not receiving a full animator's salary. By the mid-1930s, a level of frustration blossomed due to the poor working conditions and the disparity in pay between the lower animators and the full animators. In 1935, two of these so-called lower-level employees died of tuberculosis, leading many other employees to believe that they had contracted the disease due to their working conditions at Fleischer. As a result, the workers began to discuss joining a labor union. By late 1936, the Commercial Artists and Designers Union, the CADU, local 20329, began to organize at the studio, and in April of the following year, it submitted a list of demands to Max Fleischer that included increased pay, better working conditions, a closed shop policy, meaning they would only hire union talent, and a 35-hour work week. Fleischer refused to recognize the union as legitimate, nor would they negotiate with them. Over the next month, 15 employees were fired, with many pro-union employees believing that they were terminated because of their activities within the union. As a result, on May 6th, the employees voted to go on strike the following day. On May 7th, 1937, at 6.30 p.m., 100 employees of Fleischer Studios walked off the job. That night, there was a little scuffle between the picketers and the anti-union animators that resulted in several arrests. Picketing spread to other locations, including Max and Dave Fleischer's residences. They were the brothers that started the studio, if I didn't say that earlier. And the union initiated a boycott of Fleischer cartoons that was actually pretty effective in getting the productions pulled from theaters. By June, the National Labor Relations Board, who you'll be hearing a lot about today, began to hold hearings regarding the union's demand for recognition, and a certification vote was held that August, which the union won. That means Fleischer Studios had to become a union studio. This did not end the strike, however, and by the fall, several demoralized workers did opt to cross picket lines to return to work. Simultaneously, though, Paramount Pictures, who distributed the Fleischer cartoons, began to pressure the studio into just accepting a deal. They'd been doing it for several years by this point with other unions. So it would just end the strike and the boycott because Paramount was starting to see all of this negative press affect their live action productions, which had nothing to do with Fleischer. In late September, the union and company agreed to a tentative deal and the strike ended on October 12th with the strikers returning to work the following day. The agreement struck heavily favored the union's demands. Animators would receive pay increases and guarantee time off, though the studio did manage to keep themselves from becoming a closed shop. Due in large part to the strike, Max Fleischer announced that the studio would be relocating to Miami as Florida was far more hostile to unions compared to New York. Many pro-union employees refused to relocate, and following the move in 1938, Fleischer pushed for a new certification election, which the union ultimately lost, and the studio deunionized. However, within a few years of the move, the studio experienced financial difficulties related to the production of two full-length animated films, and was ultimately absorbed by Paramount Pictures as a subsidiary. So yeah. The Fleischers indirectly lost their company because they got pissed at unions and moved to a place that had next to no labor force for them. Turns out, animation, very, very, very specialized work. 
The events at Fleischer and another animation studio a couple years earlier led to the formation of the SCG, or the Screen Cartoonist Guild, in 1938. Herbert Sorrell became president in 1941. The SCG became a chapter of the Conference of Studio Unions, or CSU, and was rewarded jurisdiction over all manners pertaining to animation studios by the National Labor Relations Board. By 1941, Sorrell had secured union contracts with every major cartoon studio in Hollywood except Disney and Leon Schlesinger Productions. When Schlesinger gave in to the SCG after his employees went on a very brief strike, upon signing, he reportedly asked, what about Disney? Well, what about Disney? Several years before this, Walt Disney Productions was the highest paying animation gig with the nicest working conditions an animator could dream for. This had changed when the 20% of the profits from short cartoons that had gone toward employee bonuses was suspended. One of the most prolific artists, and a person who was regularly screwed over by Walt Disney, was a man named Art Babbitt. Art Babbitt had traveled west after beginning his animation career in New York. Once on the West Coast, he'd secured a job as an assistant animator at Disney in 1932 and was made a full animator not long after because the dude was real good at his job. Babbitt even hosted drawing sessions for his fellow animators after hours so they could all perfect their crafts together. Impressed by this, Walt eventually had an art training program form so they could do these classes at work and not have to find, you know, accommodations elsewhere. Soon, the hardworking Babbitt was one of Disney's best-paid animators as creativity surged within the animation department. The boys, the women were not allowed to rise above the ink and paint department, aka they were only allowed to color things in, began experimenting with different animation and storytelling styles, which would eventually lead to shorts like 1933's The Three Little Pigs, which took the world by storm and left the other animation studios scrambling to release something as unique with as catchy a song as Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? But despite the short's rampant popularity, The Three Little Pigs was slow to recoup costs. Animation took a lot of manpower and time compared to live action, and therefore cost quite a bit more. Walt Disney, the studio's head, would win an Oscar for the short in 1934 as the only credited individual on the short. In reality, he'd really only encouraged the work of the animators and had put in next to no physical labor into The Three Little Pigs itself. The whole idea had come from within the animation department. It's kind of giving Thomas Edison vibes. You know, technically it was made with your money, but other people did it. Not saying he didn't deserve an Oscar because he, you know, was overseeing everything, but other people put in quite a bit more work. The short's director, Burt Gillette, would leave the company that same month, likely because of the BS that had happened. Disney's next big risk was making the first full-length animation film in the form of 1938's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The film very nearly bankrupted the studio, but instead of doing that, it became a financial success and cleared the studio of its debts for the very first time. It was also the first time the animators would receive proper on-screen credit for their work. By the end of the 1930s, an attempt was made by IOTSE to take over Disney union-wise. By this time, the union had amassed a great deal of influence in Hollywood and had major contracts with nearly all the major studios to only hire their workers. Babbitt was essentially voluntold by management to form a committee to prevent this from happening by essentially forming their own internal union. 
Babbitt was elected the president of this new internal group, which they called the Federation of Screen Cartoonists. And they came up with their first list of demands for the studio, as unions are supposed to do. This list included higher pay for the lower salaried individuals, a 40-hour work week, employees were working six days a week, which was unofficially required because you can't officially require something that's illegal, and blocking any outside influence from other producers or unions. 550 eligible employees signed up, but it wouldn't be considered an official union until the National Labor Board approved it. But the Labor Board was busy waiting on the Screen Actors Guild's ratification, so the Federation would have to wait at least six to nine months. All the while, IATSE would make claims that they represented the Disney animators, as would the Federation. IATSE never got a foothold in Disney. They were just making wild claims. Unions back then were kind of wild westy. IATSE specifically was, was controlled by a pretty shady dude at this point. The Disney animators at this time were also impatiently waiting for bonuses they were told they'd get if Snow White had done well, which it had. Instead, they got a field day like what you used to have in elementary school, you know, like track and field games and a picnic. They got one of those. Eventually, it was announced that Disney was planning to give out 20% of the film's profits to its 800-ish employees. When they were actually doled out, it was reportedly a far cry from what they'd been promised. Art Babbitt, who'd been a major influence on the animation style of the film, got nothing. He'd received bonuses on shorts in the past, but never for Snow White, the biggest thing the studio had ever made. However Walt and his team was doling out this money, it was clear it was not being done fairly. When Snow White was voted the best film in 1938 in a Film Daily poll, which was like a magazine back then, Walt gifted Babbitt with a copy of the paper and a personalized memo for him to keep with, quote, all the other mementos you may be saving for your grandchildren. They'll have no inheritance, but they will have a very old magazine showing that their grandfather did something that one time. When Snow White became the highest grossing film of all time, no additional bonuses were given. In September 1939, the Federation remained in limbo and Babbitt stepped down as president, becoming its vice president instead. He got frustrated being the figurehead for something that was getting nothing done. Another list of demands was made, but these were ignored by Roy Disney, the studio CEO at the time, who also refused any negotiations from taking place. The Federation realized they had three options going forward. File a complaint with the Labor Board, which was incredibly backlogged, so no immediate help there. Just disband and deal with that. Or wait for the studio to realize that a union was the best thing for everyone. I guess if they'd stuck to three, we'd still be waiting. The Federation, however, would unofficially disband by December of 1940. The success of Snow White had further allowed Walt to construct a new, larger studio in Burbank, California, though this was financed by a loan, but the only reason he was able to get the loan was because Snow White. At this new Burbank studio, a rigid hierarchy system was enforced where employee benefits such as access to the restaurants, gymnasium, and steam room were limited to the studio's head writers and higher-up animators, which meant male-only. The favored animators also received larger and more comfortable offices. Individual departments were segregated into buildings and heavily policed by administrators. 
And the Snow White feast quickly turned into famine. The box office failures in no small part due to the breakout of World War II, therefore meaning the European box office was no longer happening, of Pinocchio and Fantasia in 1940 forced Disney to make layoffs, although Walt rarely involved himself in the hiring and firing process with those who were not atop the pay chain. The studio's pay structure was very disorganized, with some high-ranking animators earning as much as $300 a week. Babbitt was making about $200 at this time, while other employees made as little as $12 a week. According to then-Disney animator Willis Pyle, quote, There was no rhyme or reason as to the way the guys were paid. You might be sitting next to a guy doing the same thing as you, and you might be getting $20 a week more or less than him. Staff were also forced to put their name on documents which stated they worked a 40-hour work week, whilst their actual hours were much higher, and they were also working six days a week, which was not allowed. In addition, there was growing resentment at Walt Disney for taking credit for their work even after he'd publicly stated that he owed his success to his animators. You know, the ones he rarely gave on-screen credit to. Go watch one of the old shorts. Look how big Walt's name is on that. It's, It's definitely compensating for something, I would say. While Babbitt was financially struggling himself, he was also sympathetic to the low-ranking employees. After everything that had happened, he found his art suffering and began openly disliking Walt. Walt saw no problem with the studio structure, believing it was his studio to run as he pleased, and that his employees should be grateful to him for providing this new studio space. Uncle Walt had built them a kingdom. What did they have to complain about? By the early 1940s, unions were springing up all over town and, frankly, all over the nation. At this time, there were at least two unions for every trade, all fighting for recognition. Herbert Sorrell had made a name for himself by this point after the success of a 1937 strike against Warner Brothers, which had in no small part led to the boom in the Hollywood unions. He had earned a spot as a representative of the Painters Union thanks to his unmatched determination, which would lead him to leadership levels within the SCG. Like I said earlier, the SCG had secured contracts with every major animation studio in town, except for one. Now, it was time for them to get dirty with Disney. The SCG approached Walt and demanded he unionize his studio. Walt refused. He'd already managed to block out IATSE. He didn't think this time would be any different, just a different union with a different name. All he needed was the Federation to join forces again and actually get official recognition. He called in five of the Federation's leaders to try and get them to do this, including Babbitt. But Babbitt informed him that he couldn't return to the members of the Federation with nothing to show for it after a year and a half of failed negotiations. You can't say you have a union and then refuse to talk to your union. Walt told them he'd rather close down his entire studio than have outsiders tell him how to run his business and for the five of them to just figure it out. Walt just wanted to have fun. (laughs) A meeting of the Federation took place, during which time Babbitt realized that the Labor Board's rules, because he read them for the first time during this meeting, that a studio-sponsored union was not allowed. Babbitt didn't want to be a part of any union, but recognized the inevitability of them. And now he knew that the union he was a part of was an illegitimate one. He also knew that these other animators had followed him down this rabbit hole. And Babbitt was torn with what to do next, knowing that the Federation was likely founded under false pretenses by Disney. Babbitt agreed to help sign people up for the Federation, but refused to have any further leadership in the revived version. 
The Screen Cartoonist Guild got wind of this tomfoolery afoot at Disney with this sham union that was quote-unquote forming behind Disney's gates. The campaign to organize Disney animators under them officially kicked off on January 9th, 1941. At the Guild's expense, flyers were handed out at the studio's gate by newsboys informing Disney employees of the SCG's intentions to unionize them. This did not sit well with Walt's more loyal employees who tried to force a vote to get employees to recognize the Federation over an outside union. At the end of the month, Disney hired labor specialist Anthony O'Rourke in an attempt to settle any brewing labor disputes. Babbitt finally realized with O'Rourke's hiring that the Federation only existed because Disney had wanted it so. And he knew who to go to deal with that. On February 3rd, the AFL, American Federation of Labor, which was basically the parent of the SCG, filed a charge of unfair labor practice against Disney, stating that the company had coerced its employees into starting a fake union. On February 9th, the AFL spoke in front of several of the Federation members at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, during which time they laid out the successes the other guilds had experienced upon forming. Hearing about this meeting the following evening, Disney gathered all 1,200 employees into the auditorium for a little pep talk. In part, Walt told them, quote, In the 20 years I've spent in this business, I've weathered many storms. It's been far from easy sailing. It required a great deal of work, struggle, determination, competence, faith, and above all, unselfishness. Some people think we have a class distinction in the place. They wonder why some people get better seats in the theater than others. They wonder why some men get spaces in the parking lot and others don't. I have always felt and always will feel that the men that contribute most to the organization should, out of respect alone, enjoy some privileges. My first recommendation to the lot of you is this. Put your own house in order. You can't accomplish a damn thing by sitting around and waiting to be told everything. If you're not progressing as you should, instead of grumbling and growling, do something about it. Shockingly, that little speech changed exactly zero minds and actually led to several employees joining the SCG mere hours later at a follow-up meeting at the Roosevelt. The Disney branch of the SCG was officially formed that night. Babbitt would soon join their ranks. He was elected the chairman of the Disney branch of the SCG on February 18th. Hearing of this, Walt had taken to calling Babbitt Benedict Arnold, who was a famous Revolutionary War traitor, for those of you not from the States, every time the two ran into each other. Walt had also come to the conclusion that Babbitt was probably earning more bonuses than he should and hired quote-unquote efficiency experts to cut costs. Layoffs occurred in the hopes of keeping the company afloat because shit was getting real dire, regardless of the union stuff. The Federation was unofficially delegitimized in April by a local member of the Labor Relations Board. The official confirmation had to come from a group in Washington. Ironically, the office had just been exited by Walter Spreckles, whom Disney had just hired as a labor attorney. It was recommended by the new Spreckles that the Federation disband, as it was incredibly likely those in Washington, who were backlogged by those pesky six to nine months, would reach the same conclusion when the official hearing eventually happened. As Babbitt and his fellow Guild members celebrated their victory the next day, Walt angrily wired every single member of the Labor Board demanding to be seen ASAP. 
All the while, Walt continued to threaten to close the studio if a strike occurred. Walt confronted Babbitt and told him if he didn't stop the organizing, he would throw him, quote, out of the front gate. Would you like to guess what happened next? By May, Disney had become split between two warring factions as bulletins flew to and fro, trying to get people to switch between the Federation and the SEG. Keep in mind, they were still producing several cartoons at this time as well, including Dumbo, The Reluctant Dragon, and Bambi, as well as several other shorts. The Federation ended officially on May 15th, shortly after Walt returned from vacation, but was immediately replaced by the American Society of Screen Cartoonists, or ASSC, and once again was a studio-backed union, which was still against the rules. But it had a different name, you guys. Walt also undid what few agreements his lawyers had made between the SCG and the studio while he'd been gone for good measure. On May 19th, the Labor Relations Board convened to discuss the legitimacy of the no longer in existence Federation, and it was unofficially decreed that, yeah, they broke the rules, but since the Federation didn't exist anymore and nothing got done, no harm, no foul. The next day, 24 Disney artists were laid off. Instead of being given two weeks notice for their jobs ending, attached to the memo informing them of their end of employment was a check for two weeks salary. 17 were guild members and five of those were leaders in the guild. A strike vote was called by the SCG for May 28th. On May 27th, Walt addressed the entire staff in the studio theater again because it had gone so well the last time. In summary, he told his employees that they could join whichever union they wanted. I'm pretty sure he was talking to the lawyers by this point. He also told them that Disney was ready to bargain with anybody so long as the majority of employees were represented by that entity. A vote was planned to officiate which of the two unions would be that union. In another change of tune, he also told them that the studio, even if a strike occurred, would remain open. A notable missing individual from this meeting was Art Babbitt. He had been fired just before and was escorted off the lot by studio police. His reason for being fired was the fact that he, quote, disturbed the moral of the employees and has seriously interrupted and disturbed production operations. As Babbitt drove off the lot, he declared, I will be back. That was the final straw. The next day, May 28th, over half of the members of the studio staff went on strike right in the middle of production on Dumbo and just days before the reluctant dragon was slated for release. Traffic entering the studio came to a standstill as picketers screamed at their co-workers entering the studio to reconsider while informing them of the repercussions they would face if the strike succeeded. They'd be fined their salary plus $5 per day the strike went on plus another $100. Unsurprisingly, friendships fractured as the gates separating them closed betwixt them. Flyers were handed out to passersby, providing information to the masses as to just how bad things were in Walt's kingdom. For example, the women in ink and paint made less money than a house painter, and that didn't even factor in the overtime they weren't getting paid for. The strikers demanded a 10% raise for all animators and a 25% for the lower-ranking artists, amongst other things. They also wanted the fired animators to be restored to their jobs, as they'd clearly been fired for union activity, which was not allowed. Other studios' animators, such as those from Schlesinger, offered their support during the strike. 
Disney's Teamsters, Carpenters, the kitchen staff, editors, cameramen, sound people, and electricians also refused to cross the picket lines. Picketers worked in two-hour shifts and were in front of the studio 24 hours a day. Disney fudged a lot of its numbers at this time, but we know now that 333 strikers out of the 602 eligible animators went on strike. Disney also wouldn't release the exact number of eligible animators that were employed at the studio to keep the SCG from having an accurate count. That way, they couldn't declare majority because they had it by a slim margin, but they had it. Walt believed the strike would only last a day or so. Spoiler alert, it did not. After years of facilitating strikes, Sorrell had no problem figuring out where to hit Disney where it hurts, including convincing the Technicolor film plant to immediately stop processing Disney films. By the following Monday, the strike grew to include other disgruntled members of the Disney family, including the studio's electrical workers, maintenance, and lab techs. The LA Daily News stopped publishing Disney cartoons. The animated cartoons were pulled from several theaters because they didn't want to get picketed. The internal art training program lost its last member and closed forever. Sorrell began planning picketing of Fantasia, which was in theaters, to try and get it taken out. It had been in release for nearly six months. It was not making its money back. Sorrell wanted to ensure that it definitely would not. And RKO, Disney's distributor at this time, refused to release The Reluctant Dragon for fear of retaliation. The release was pushed several weeks. This all happened within the first seven days of the strike, mind you. This was not like weeks of progress. This was seven days. A week in, the strikers had made quite the little camp for themselves. They had an area to play games between striking shifts and a soup kitchen to feed the less financially stable members of the picket lines. The picnic tables were constructed by the Warner Brothers Carpenters in solidarity. Come nighttime, the Musicians Guild would send down a crew and the picketers, who were mostly under the age of 30, would get a chance to dance and blow off some steam. Screenwriter and future Hollywood 10 member Dalton Trumbo would call it, quote, Hollywood's favorite strike. The super creative signs made by people who could actually draw didn't hurt either. I have one on um, the social medias, but also like just Google. The, the picket signs were incredible. At one point, someone even had a mock guillotine, which was used to behead a mannequin of Walt Disney. Like these were very innovative individuals. This whole behavior didn't jive with everyone, however, and several of the animators returned to work, leaving the guild in the process. By the second week of the strike, 35 picketers returned to the studio. Despite this, the number of striking animators always remained around 330 by the SCG's count. So there must have been some like wishy-washy in and outing happening, which, you know, people are allowed to be themselves. Each morning, Sorrell would greet the scabbers by name over a megaphone as they crossed the picket line, which cannot feel good. On the other side of the gate, Disney retaliated very maturely by depicting some of the striking employees in caricature in Dumbo as antagonistic circus clowns. Walt was still pushing the blind vote agenda for a winning union because that was defo gonna hold up in court, not. But the labor board who had stepped in to mediate would only ratify the vote if there was a list comparison to who was casting ballots to ensure that the vote was accurate. Walt shut that down because he knew he could only win if they had bonus votes. 
Walt met with the SCG on June 11th, a little over two weeks into the strike. He tried to claim that the only reason the SCG might have a majority vote was because the animators felt pressure to sign up to the union that was outside the studio gates. Sure, Walt. The SCG members poked holes into this theory, and the next day, a nationwide ban of Disney products was officially called for. They just really shouldn't let Walt Disney to talk to anybody. On June 13th, Walt released his quote-unquote loyalists early from work. Those were the people who continued to cross the picket lines each day. And when the strikers discovered that they'd missed their former co-workers, I guess, from leaving the studio, Babbitt got on the PA system and began chanting, Walt Disney, you ought to be ashamed. Hearing this as he was leaving, Walt got out of his car and tried to attack Babbitt, but the altercation was stopped by studio guards, who, by the way, had been deputized by the city of Burbank, so they were like legit cops. By June 18th, the ASSC was beginning to dismantle from within. They didn't see the light, though. They were planning on starting a third internal union, still not allowed, called the Animator Cartoon Associates, or ACA. It was totally different, you guys. They picked two different people to lead it than the other one had had. When they tried to make it legit on June 19th at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, they were interrupted by 50 picketers. By the fifth week of the strike, people were losing morale and the public was becoming less angry. Roy convinced RKO to release The Reluctant Dragon. It premiered in New York on June 25th to a sold-out crowd. LA screenings would be picketed and it affected the film's reviews, which in turn hurt the box office. Walt had one last Hail Mary to end the strike how he saw fit. He seeked out Willie Bioff, who was a big shot within IOTSI. Bioff was a shady dude who'd done all kinds of shady shit in the name of the union, but would ultimately get busted for tax evasion. Bioff would tell the press that any union corruption occurred because of the Communist Party's influence, which was not true. Whatever happened during the secret meeting between Bioff and Walt, no one knows. What can be confirmed is the shady shit that started to happen. False stories about the strike being settled began appearing in the trade papers. Other claims were made about timelines for employees to return to their jobs within a short time frame. This baffled the SCG because no deals had been made. So this led to members of the SCG, AFL, IOTSI, and Disney meeting up at Bioff's house to try to come up with an agreement to end the strike. They're like, all right, okay. Sorrell was among the SCG, AFL negotiators, but realized he would need to bow out for something to get done, as Walt had been actively accusing the man of being a commie for months, and this had damaged Sorrell's credibility quite a bit. Sorrell bowed out for the good of the cause. The sketchiness of a deal that was composed at Bioff's home and not at the Roosevelt as all prior business of the SCG had been carried out for this spooked the protesters when it came time to vote for the deal that had been struck. They turned it down. Bioff would not be a part of any deal struck by the animators and Disney. Enraged, Walt published a full-page ad in Variety, informing the animators of what they could have had the following day. The day after that, the animators reminded Walt in their own ad that Bioff had no part of their fate. He was not their boss. It would come out later that the deal Walt had claimed the animators would have gotten was never the official one on the table. Shocker. Bringing Bioff into this fight did Walt way more harm than good, and it actually revitalized the strikers. 
Slowly but surely, the other striking bodies of Disney began making deals with Disney, including the editors on July 9th, and were ordered to return to work. But an animator's strike resolution remained elusive. Eventually, the U.S. government had to be brought in to end it. The National Labor Relations Board asked Walt to sign a union contract, and he ultimately agreed to one weeks into the government getting involved. Not the first one, though. He turned on the first one. He did have a bit more incentive this time, as he was planning a goodwill tour of Latin America to produce animated films as part of the good neighbor policy. By leaving, Walt hoped that tensions would cool in his absence, although the SCG kept up pressure in the run-up to Disney's departure. The union's business agent obtained details of union leaders in the cities that were on Disney's itinerary. Sorrell then contacted the State Department to inform them that pickets of Disney and his films were being organized in South America, arguing that, quote, the Disney company should comply with the American standards of fair treatment of labor, end quote, as a condition of Walt being allowed to represent the United States as a goodwill ambassador. All of what happened next occurred while Walt was away. On August 2nd, after nearly a month of arbitration, the strikers received their first union agreement. The agreement included only union animators, a.k.a. a closed shop, a 25% raise for the low-ranking animators, an enforced 40-hour work week, the ability for women to rise above the ink and paint department, on-screen credits, sick days, 100 hours of back pay for the strikers, and no repercussions for Art Babbitt. The strike officially came to an end on September 21st, and as the strikers returned to work, tensions remained high between them and the loyalists. Many never spoke to each other again. Mere weeks later, the studio, now facing dire financial straits, tried to lay off 256 animators, 207 of which were former strikers, including Babbitt. Before this was made official, the studio closed down for a month to do some restructuring, reopening on September 17th, an utterly changed shop. Babbitt would end up not being an individual that got laid off, but was not given assignments at a regular rate. Often he had to beg for them. Walt returned to his decimated studio in late October. By this time, there had been layoffs, several films had to be shelved because there was no money, and the dysfunctional family Walt had tried to pass off as a utopia no longer had the facade hiding the dirty laundry. 98 more layoffs occurred in November, with Babbitt being included in this lot. He refused to leave, but it was futile. He filed two lawsuits against them, one for unpaid bonuses and another for unlawful termination. But then the U.S. entered World War II and people's focus kind of shifted. When the dust settled, the strike left Disney with just over half of its original employees. Many went to other animation studios and had long careers, even returning to Disney as the years stamped on and tensions cooled. Disney was forced to rehire Babbitt in 1945 after it was found that he was unlawfully fired, though Babbitt would eventually leave for good in 1946. Walt never forgave the strike participants and subsequently treated union members with contempt, arguing in a letter that the strike, quote, cleaned house at our studio, end quote, and got rid of, quote, the chip on the shoulder boys and the world owes me a living lads. Testifying to the HUAC committee a few years later, Walt alleged that communism had played a major role in the strike. It had not. And many of the participants were blacklisted, including Art Heinemann, an art director on Fantasia, who hadn't been an animator, rather a manager. He went on strike in sympathy with the animators and was subsequently fired and blacklisted, and his name was removed from the Fantasia credits. Because... 
of bitterness stemming from this event. Walt would become a major part of the HUAC blacklisting, which destroyed thousands of lives beyond those who'd been under his employ. For the remaining years of his life, Walt never got over his animators demanding to be paid what they were owed. I, I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. And uh, the thing that, that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over and represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good 100% Americans uh, have to, are trapped by this group and they're represented to the world as supporting all of those ideologies. And it's not so. And I feel that, uh, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American can go out without this taint of communism. That's my sincere feelings on it. Do you feel that there is a... And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I've also got buy me a coffee. No coffee today because I just bounced out of bed and got in front of this microphone, but I will be having coffee once I get off of this microphone. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we'll look into Hollywood's Black Friday, the most violent event in Hollywood union history, and the strike that caused it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.